Now, I believe the Bible's accessible, and I think most of what we read in the Bible we can easily understand, although there are times, uh, and by the way, part of that's because I think we have some great modern translations that uh, really do help us to understand what the original authors uh, wanted to convey to us. But sometimes there's a section of the Bible that benefits from a little cultural and historical background, and today's section is one of those. It's from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and specifically, he talks here about the relationship between husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. So it's important and helpful for us to know a little bit about the status of women and children and slaves in the ancient world. Women, to begin with, had a low social standing in the ancient world. For the most part, a woman was considered property, not a person. She had no legal status. Her husband could do virtually whatever he wanted with her. Divorce was tragically easy. Um, There are even records of uh, women being divorced simply for not putting enough salt in their husband's meal. And women frequently, or excuse me, men frequently divorced their wives just because they found someone who was more attractive. In the Greek world, women lived a secluded life because prostitution was common Uh, husbands were seldom faithful. In Roman society, it was even worse. Women were under the complete control of their husbands. In many cases, marriage amounted to a form of enslavement. Now, over the years, many things have changed. But even in our cultural moment, we're confronted by the realization that we may not have made as much progress as we think we have. Some men are behaving very badly and treating women in dehumanizing ways and expecting women to be okay with that. Well, they aren't and they shouldn't be. Now, shifting gears for a moment to children. In the Roman world, fathers had complete control over their children's lives. And that control extended into adulthood because in most cultures at the time, as long as the father was alive, the children were expected to obey. They never really came of age. A father's power extended even to life or death decisions. So when a child was born, the father would make a decision whether the child lived or not. Because of a bias for boys, it wasn't uncommon for girls to be exposed to the elements. And a child who was deformed had little hope of survival. And then there's the question about slaves. Now, you may be surprised, but as many as 60 million people in the ancient world were slaves, about 30 to 40% of the population. Slavery was taken for granted. They were not persons in the eyes of most. And from an economic standpoint, slaves were treated as property. Now, the treatment of slaves varied widely. Many were valued, respected, and trusted parts of the family, but others were used and abused in every way imaginable by careless and inhumane masters. So the life of a slave was often grim and terrible. The good news, if you can call it that, is that slavery was very fluid. Some slaves had the opportunity for advancement, even to secure their freedom, and some freed slaves even became independently wealthy. Now, the text that we're going to look at in Ephesians 5 and 6 follows the format that the ancient historians called a household code. These are relatively common, a code that described the responsibilities and obligations of different people in households. And because these wives and husbands, children and, and, uh, children and parents and slaves were part of households, these instructions were written to those kinds of situations. Now, there are some surviving codes from other cultures, particularly the Roman culture, around the same time that Paul wrote what we have here today. Many of those codes were written actually as a response to some changes uh, that other religious traditions were contributing to those kinds of relationships. So they were written really in opposition to some of the trends that were taking place among the Christian families. 
The basic principle here is they were trying to uphold traditional Roman values and specifically to underscore the absolute authority of the male head of the house. Now, Paul's code was different from those codes. His goal was to cast a new vision for family relationships. He was really taking the vision that Jesus had had uh, for women and continuing to play that out. He wanted Christians to stand out as an alternative community with countercultural values. Now, you've already heard the text read. If you want to follow along, it's on page 1780 in the Pew Bibles, page 1780. I'm just going to be focusing on a few highlights because we've got these three sets of relationships, and we'll spend the most time on uh, husbands and wives, but we'll also spend time on the others as well. I want to start with verse 22. It's not the first verse in the text. It's the second verse, but it's where Paul writes, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And already a few of you are saying, this is the reason I don't go to church anymore. And you're a little surprised you showed up today and you're thinking about, you may be still sitting in the pew, but you're thinking I'm already outside. Now I get it. The notion of submission is totally out of step with contemporary culture. It seems backward and outdated. Now, there may be a few others of you, a couple of guys here in the room who are saying, that's right, woman, you got to obey me. Maybe no one here, um, but uh, if you happen to think that, you know, believe that you can lord it over your wife, uh, you may be the ones walking out by the end of this sermon. So here's the deal. The verse I just read needs to be understood in context. First, though, we need to look at what the verse literally says. In other words, if you just take the Greek words and you translate them directly into English, what does verse 22 say? And it literally says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So what's missing? Well, it's the verb. The verb submit is not there. Why not? What's going on? Well, what translators have done is borrow the verb submit from the verse that immediately precedes verse 22. And that's verse 21, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to say more about that in a moment, but the point here is that the verb submit is inferred from the verse that comes immediately before. I think that's the right way to translate it, but the fact that this is there shows us an important relationship between these two verses. I want you to hold that thought for a moment and we'll come back to verse 21. I've already said, though, that verse 22 offends our modern sensibilities. But those listening to what Paul wrote would have had a very different reaction. As one pastor suggested, they would have said, duh, not uh. In other words, they would have said, you know, that's exactly the way we understand it. That's the way our world works. And likely, they would have seldom, particularly women, would have seldom wondered whether or not anything could be different. The idea of men in charge at home was just the way it was. So even if Paul had said something harsher, like wives obey your husbands, which many people think he said, but he didn't say, that would not have surprised them. That was what many of the other household codes at the time said. Because the assumption was that men called the shots, it would not have surprised anyone in the ancient world if Paul had just gone along with the party line. So while it might be a big deal to us, it's doubtful it was a big deal to them. Except what Paul does here changes everything. What he did is continue something that Jesus started, giving women a higher status and actually raising the bar for men at the same time. So let's go back now to verse 21, where Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the radical part. Paul's saying that it's not just wives submitting to their husbands, but husbands as well submitting to their wives. Submission's to be mutual. It means that both parties in a marriage are to do all they can to serve the other person. 
And if that isn't radical enough, listen to what Paul says to men in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, by the way, was unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, what Paul says here is even a bit obscured because of the word love. We have one word that conveys a lot of different concepts. They had multiple words that described love. And this specific word is a narrow and really the most, the highest form of love that, that they were to understand. That was the word agape. It's a word that describes universal, unconditional, sacrificial love. And Paul even gives an example of what that love looks like by describing how Jesus laid down his life for us on our behalf in order that we might have a relationship with God. So in marriage, this sort of love is a selfless love that's passionately committed to the well-being of another person. Now, what should that look like today? Well, ours is an age of liberation, and I believe if Paul were here today, he'd be happy with an awful lot of the changes that have taken place in our culture today. Because for generations, women have been exploited, suppressed, and squashed in ways that sadden God. As men, we need to acknowledge with shame the way that we've often gone along with the status quo and prevented women from fulfilling their God-given destinies. The only caveat, though, that I would offer here is that at the extremes, this new sensibility to the plight of, of women can lead both men and women to abandon the mutuality of submission that Paul wants for us in the context of marriage. Just as it's easy for men to exploit women selfishly, too, it's possible for women to do the same thing. It may be less common, but it can happen. In either direction, though, the concept of submission eliminates selfishness. Marriage is never meant to be a tyranny, and the concept of a husband who just issues orders is simply not found in the New Testament. Marriage is to be a reciprocal arrangement, a relationship, in which each one is competing to outgive and outlove the other. So how do we do that today? Well, first, we need to see marriage as a place where we each work to help the other develop and exercise their spiritual gifts. Just this week, I saw a quick video by a prominent pastor who was talking about how he and his wife have very different spiritual gifts. And one of the challenges they've had is working out how they can support one another in that so that each one can realize the full, full spiritual and kingdom potential of their gifts. Now, that can mean that we have to think creatively about how to leverage the gifts and interests of both partners in a marriage. Many years ago, I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple. They were in their late 20s. They were really very ideally suited for one another, and I had full uh, confidence that they were going to do well as a married couple, but they had one area of conflict. And so in my office, they described how they were struggling with how they were going to manage money once they got married. Now, here are the facts. The wife was a CPA. She worked as a personal finance manager for a very wealthy family. I mean an extremely wealthy family here in the Twin Cities. She managed their day-to-day -day financial affairs, which included writing checks to all the kids and grandkids. They were very big allowance checks. She handled their investments. She coordinated the process of filing their taxes. She was really good at her job. The problem was that her fiance was insisting that once they got married, he would manage the money in the household. And I asked him why. He said, well, my dad did it when I was growing up. I said, listen, what do you do? And I knew the answer to the question. I said, what do you do for a living? Well, I teach high school history. I said, wait a second here. It didn't take me more than a nanosecond to say, you're nuts if you think you're going to manage the family finances. You've got a pro here. You grill the hamburgers, she manages the money. In general, the division of labor in a home ought to be based on who has the expertise, time, and passion. Paul concludes this section with a summary. He says, 
every, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, my experience is that men who want to push the submit button seldom want to love sacrificially. What Paul does here is not give either party permission to bully or boss. Instead, there should be mutual submission, respect, and sacrificial love. Now, Paul's vision for, was, for marriage was radical then, and it's radical today. The idea that a woman would submit, or the, the man of the house would submit to anyone was unheard of, and they were certainly not told in those days to love their wives. They had an overly patriarchal approach that meant that women were often treated as second-class citizens. And that happens today, maybe not as often, but we often make an even different error when we avoid that one. We treat marriage as a vehicle for personal happiness. Many go through divorce saying things like, we grew apart. These are all things I've heard in my office. We grew apart, or he or she's no longer meeting my needs, or we've got irreconcilable differences. It's always put in terms, or often put in terms of self-fulfillment. For many, marriage is just a temporary thing for our own personal gratification. Marriage is a serial monogamy rather than a lifelong partnership. And candidly, it's a selfish way to approach relationships. It's no wonder that marriages fail at an alarming rate. Now, let me take a caveat here. There are other reasons that may be appropriate reasons for couples to get divorced, particularly when there's abuse or other kinds of problems in the marriage. But nonetheless, often today, it's about selfishness. Now, you may be wondering, as you hear all of this, how this all played out and what Paul and what he wrote, what effect that have in the ancient world. And one historian has examined that. He looked at the first 250 years after Jesus ascended into heaven to say what happened in the ancient world, what happened to the role of women and to the concept of marriage. Here are his conclusions. That Christian women enjoyed a far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world. For one, Christian families did not practice infanticide. That meant that the Christians had more girls. And because the Christians had more girls, the pagan boys were hung around the Christians. They, they, got, they noticed. Some of them even converted in order to be able to find a wife. And if they found themselves in a marriage where the husband wasn't a Christian and the wife was, often the wives converted them. In addition, among Christians, there were fewer incidences of divorce, infidelity, and polygamy. Christians not only valued female chastity, which was valued in the ancient world, but they, re they rejected the double standard that gave pagan men so much sexual license. It meant that Christian women enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did their pagan neighbors. Now, while that may be very surprising, kind of mind-blowing for some of you, women were much better off in Christian homes in those first three centuries. In fact, I would suggest that our modern sensibilities about how women and men ought to interact have a direct connection to the values that Paul and others taught at this time. So that's women and men, husbands and wives. Let's take up the relationship of children to parents. We aren't going to spend as much time here, but let me just list how it starts out. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We mentioned earlier that Paul did not tell wives to obey their husbands, but he does tell children to. Why does he do that? Well, the difference here is that parents have a responsibility to raise children in a way that leads them toward mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual maturity. Children need guidance, especially when they're young, and that means they need to obey. It's important here to point out, though, what Paul means by children. I've already mentioned that in many ancient cultures, fathers had complete control over children well into adulthood, as long as they were living. But Paul has a different idea. So let me explain by an example. 
My parents are still living. Uh, My father's 87, my mom is 88. They're closing in on their 88th and 89th birthdays. And in one sense, I'm still their child. But Paul is not talking to me here. He's talking to children who have not yet reached the age of maturity. What's the age of maturity? Well, it's probably a sliding scale between, say, around high school graduation and mid-20s. The question here is whether you are dependent or independent of your parents. So the rule of thumb is if your parents are funding your lifestyle, if you're living under their roof, you are dependent. But if you're married, employed, out of the house, you're independent, and obviously there's a continuum in between. So the duty to obey expires with the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood. But even if you're an adult, you still have a responsibility to your parents, and that's what Paul mentions in verse 2. It's not to obey, but it is to honor your father and mother. This is one of the Ten Commandments. To honor means to value and to show respect, and you can do that as long as your parents are alive. Now, again, there are some exceptions. If your parents are dishonorable people, then you're going to need to draw boundaries. Paul's talking here about the ideal situation. So when things are less than ideal, there may need to be another arrangement. But in general, we show our parents respect and honor no matter what age we are. Now, that transition between the independent, dependent and independent can be a little tricky. So our youngest daughter uh, is graduating from college in two weeks. Uh, She's graduating a semester early. And uh, this summer, she started interviewing for jobs. She's been majoring in Christian ministry. She wants to work in a church. And so she started talking to churches this last summer. She found out that there's a large church that has an intern uh, program, and they had a couple of positions open. And so she decided to apply. And the two positions she looked at were one in children's ministry and the other with adults. Given my vast experience and wisdom into the world of church jobs, I suggested that she apply for the children's ministry position because I thought, who's going to hire a 20-year-old to work in adult ministry? But she wanted to apply for the adult ministry position. So I said, you're crazy. But that's what she wanted to do. Now, I should have seen this coming. This is one of those points between the dependent and independent deal. And So I finally got her to make a compromise, and that was to apply for both positions. And I thought, well, when she gets into the initial interview, they'll quickly move toward children, and that'll all be done. And so she went to meet with the hiring manager, and hiring manager asked her, I see you applied to both positions. Which one do you want? And she said, adult ministry. They never talked about the children's ministry position again, and she got the job. (laughs) Just so is what her dear old dad knows. Now, that's the part about the children's responsibility, to obey and up to a certain age, age of maturity, and then to honor from that point on. Now let's talk about what parents, the responsibility parents have. Now, it says fathers here, but it's really inclusive of mothers as well. And it says, right off the bat, fathers, do not exasperate your children, or as older translations say, don't provoke your children to anger. And the idea here is that we shouldn't push our children to the breaking point. We should never try to break their spirit. In part, I think that means that we shouldn't be overly strict. Now, we'll come back and balance that in a moment, but let's just say that parents, some parents, have a strong need to control their kids. Don't do it. Don't demand perfection from your kids. Uh, Let them be children. I read something this week that I wish I had read when my girls were little. Say yes as often as you can, only say no when you have to. The goal here is to allow children to flourish, to help them develop the gifts they have, not to make them into little performers. 
Paul also says that parents are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the training piece is, I think, the balance here, and that is really provide them with a sense of order and structure. There's some disciplines that parents need to put in place. Children do not do good in unstructured, chaotic situations, so they need discipline. They need to learn to work hard. They need to learn to manage their emotions, and we can help them, especially by modeling those things in our own lives. The second thing here he mentions is the instruction of the Lord, and he's talking about spiritual instruction. Now, some of you have been here for a parent-child dedication, so we have a family up here with a child, and we ask the family some questions, we ask all of you questions, and uh, the question that, two of the questions we uh, ask parents are, do you promise to read them the stories of the Bible and tell them of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And the second question, or one of the, question, the other questions is, do you promise to raise them in the church and so encourage them spiritually? Now, for parents, spiritual instruction is more important than math, science, history, or English. That's what we're to do, the unique role that we need to play in their lives. The final pair of relationships that Paul talks about is slaves and masters. And this is more complex than the others, um, in part because it looks like, if you just read it on the surface, that Paul's okay with the institution of slavery. I wish we had more time to unpack this, but just as Paul turns marriage on its head, he turns this institution on its head as well. He starts by telling slaves in verse 5 to obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Obey with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. He's talking here about obedience and respect. Then he goes on to say that you're to be conscientious even when they're not looking to do good work. And above all, remember that you don't work for this master. You work for Christ. That's the ultimate person we work for. Now, I know the text says slaves, but I think the principles that apply here are really applied to the employer-employee relationship. Our masters are not our employers really aren't our masters in the strictest sense, but they do have significant control over our lives. Often, our employers can fire and hire us. Uh, they can raise our pay or dock our pay. They can do a lot of similar things. In that relationship, though, we need to remember we don't just work for them. We work ultimately for Jesus. And it's then that Paul shifts to masters. He tells them to treat their slaves with respect and serve them. He reminds them not to threaten their employees, but really, in spirit anyway, going all the way back to verse 21, the verse that says submit to one another, he says to have a relationship of mutuality with their, with their slaves. The institution of slavery was and is evil, and Paul knew it. Um, but he and the other Christians at the time knew, could no more envision a world without slavery than we can envision a world without Wi-Fi. What Paul did here, though, is transform the conversation. Over time, slavery began to disappear. It took a long time. And the effort to abolish slavery was often led by Christians in different parts of the world. With 2020 hindsight, many critics of the New Testament writers say that they were cowards, unwilling to take slavery head on. But we need to understand they had a lot tougher task than we might initially think. At the time Paul wrote this, there were very few Christians, certainly as a proportion of the population, but really very few in, in, in general. They lacked access to political power, and they were fighting a deeply entrenched system. But what we know is that over time, things did change, in large part because of Christians. Let me give you one example, and this one's actually from the New Testament. It's a little letter that many of you may have skipped over, and it's called Philemon. Let me give you the background. Philemon is a Christian that Paul has a relationship with. He happens to be a slave owner. And he had a slave named Onesimus. 
Nisimus had run away. Nisimus was not a believer at the time when he ran away. He went to Rome. Apparently he could hide there and kind of blend in with the masses. But he began to have a crisis, a crisis of faith. He made his way to Paul. He became a Christian and faithfully served Paul. Over time, he became convicted. Convicted, he knew he'd done the wrong thing by running away, but he feared what would happen if he went back to his master, to Philemon. So Paul said, you know what? I'm gonna help you out. So he wrote a letter vouching for Onesimus. He told Philemon that Onesimus had changed and that he deserved a second chance. And then he said this in verses 15 and 16. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother in the Lord. Now that's subversive stuff. Little by little, Paul is undermining the institution of slavery. Now, just to wrap things up here, this household code that Paul wrote is like nothing else in the ancient world. His goal was to describe a new life that they had found in Christ and how it worked its way out in the home. And in marriage, that's through mutual submission, respect, and love. That husbands and wives find a give and take between responsibility and selfless service and prioritize the well-being of one another above their own desires. In the relationship between parents and children, he says obedience and honor is what children ought to show to their parents. And then kindness, discipline, and instruction is what parents provide for their children. And if they do, they'll flourish. And it's a healthy mix of obedience, respect, and hard work that God's honored in the marketplace. And it's through selfless service that masters can provide their, their employees with something positive in their lives. But above all, this text hinges on verse 21, where we are to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, with this as background, help us today to think deeply about what it means to submit to one another out of reference for you, our Savior. Let us learn to love one another deeply. Let us show proper respect to everyone. And Father, I pray that others outside of Christian faith might see this, that we might win their respect as we live these values out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.